0: This podcast is brought to you by JDRF Australia and Sanofi. Hello, I'm Andrew Gagan and welcome to the T1D Tune In. T1D used to be known as juvenile diabetes and is often regarded as a disease affecting just children, but they never grow out of it. In this series, we'll hear from adults with type 1 who are leading inspirational lives. We'll also talk to the brilliant researchers, working on exciting new treatments and striving to find a cure. Spending years working towards a career and then securing your dream job is often what we strive for in life. That's where our next guest found himself, literally flying high as an international airline pilot. But a diagnosis of type one diabetes quickly saw him crash to earth with the realization that he'd never fly again as a commercial pilot
1: being on the other side of the planet where i didn't know anyone and didn't really have any access to, to healthcare, they gave me a shot of insulin i'd love to know what and how much and told me to get on the next flight back to australia
0: far from feeling sorry for himself jeremy robertson chose to spread his wings again working towards another career as a doctor today he combines medicine with his love of flying and jeremy robertson joins us now jeremy welcome to the t1d tune-in podcast pleasure to be here thanks for having me
1: now had you always wanted to be a pilot yes from from as early as I can remember so why was that I don't know I think it's just one of those things you're born with I just always remember looking at up at airplanes flying overhead you know my dad would teach me to identify airplanes by the contrail pattern and stuff you, like you were that.
0: the the plane spotter in the backyard yeah you? yeah well and I must have
1: been a Pain in the ass around the house. So uh, I remember him taking me and you know, going, sitting at the end of the runway at, uh, at Canberra Airport where I grew up, and just doing that to watch airplanes and get me out of the house. Yeah, probably my earliest memory of exposure to a little to well, airplanes of all sizes. So tell us how you became a pilot.
0: Uh,
1: I started learning to fly when I was in year eleven at high school. I went to a high school that offered uh, the private pilot theory subject as a high school subject. Um, so I spent two years slowly working away at my private pilot licence and had that by the end of year 12 and then I moved up to Sydney to go to the University of New South Wales and they've got a Bachelor of Aviation degree and that uh, that provides you with all of your flying training up to commercial level. So I guess yeah, it was a five year journey from starting to learn to fly to having all my qualifications and, uh, yeah, and then I popped out and started job hunting.
0: And you ended up? At Qantas. Yeah,
1: yep. Yeah, I, uh, I was very lucky with my timing. You know, the aviation industry, as you can see at the moment, mm. you know, it's, it responds to so many different uh, external forces. And I was just lucky that I was working my way through the, the bottom end of the industry whilst the airlines were recruiting heavily. So I only spent maybe two and a half years flying small aeroplanes before I was successful with the job application with Qantas.
0: Okay, and what sort of planes were you flying?
1: Your apprenticeship position is sitting in the back seat of a 747. Uh, so there's always three, sometimes four pilots on that aeroplane. So you'd be the junior member of the crew. You do a lot of watching, a lot of learning, not a lot of actual hand flying. Um, so I flew that the 747 for four years, and then I was promoted to first officer on the 767.
0: So, Jeremy, what is it about flying big commercial passenger jets
1: that's so enjoyable? Oh, there's so many different things. Um, I've always enjoyed the the real-time problem-solving aspect of flying an aeroplane. It's yeah, it's kind of constant three-dimensional problem-solving. Even when you're in the cruise, you're always thinking about yeah, contingency plans and what's going on around you with weather, other aeroplanes. Operating in a multi-crew environment, so we've got more than one pilot, uh, is a really unique little workspace and I really enjoyed that work environment. Operating a hugely complicated aeroplane that roars around the sky at eight or 900 kilometres an hour that's pretty cool I always enjoyed that and then there was you know the travel camaraderie um just a yeah lots of different things that I loved about it
0: yeah well it sounded as though at that that point you had the world at your feet you'd found Mm. a successful career you're enjoying it what more could you ask but then in 2010 at the age of 31 yes You were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes.
1: Talk us through
0: how you were diagnosed.
1: So I'd actually taken myself off to Los Angeles to do a two-week training course uh, outside of my Qantas work and I had been running around like a headless chicken in Sydney before going uh, because my wife and I were planning our wedding. It was a hot, humid January, so I was sweating more, drinking lots and just thought that was normal. Got to Los Angeles in the middle of winter. You know, cool, cool, crisp Mediterranean winter, sort of dry. And I was still drinking, urinating more and more. And eventually, one day, I noticed that my vision was a bit blurry. It didn't matter if I was wearing my glasses or not wearing my glasses. Um, and that just, that just made me twig that something wasn't right. So, I toddled off to a local medical centre, and they tested my blood sugar level, and it was twenty five point five. Uh, you know, in a, I know you can't all see me at the moment, but I'm six foot tall and weigh 75 kilograms and haven't changed size for most of my life. So those kind of symptoms in an otherwise young, fit, healthy male, uh, it's pretty much only one diagnosis that it was going to be. Being on the other side of the planet where I didn't know anyone and didn't really have any access to, to health care, they gave me a shot of insulin. I'd love to know what and how much. Um, they gave me a bottle of metformin tablets and told me to get on the next flight back to Australia. Uh, which is what I did.
0: Goodness so, I mean that must have been a very long flight.
1: Uh, yeah, I just remember sitting there avoiding eating any carbohydrate on the flight home, which mm. when you think about airplane food is pretty challenging. It's pretty all. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so you get back to Sydney. What happens?
1: I rang up work and just told them I was sick because uh, I hadn't had a, f- you know, a formal diagnosis at that stage. I went to the Garvin Institute and went through the process of being formally diagnosed, you know, antibody positive, type 1 diabetes, and then that gave me the answer that I guess I knew was coming about my career, that I couldn't hold a class 1 aviation medical, and so my, my glamorous airline career had ground to a halt on the spot.
0: So tell us a bit more about that. Why is it that you can't fly if you have type 1?
1: Well, aviation medicine comes down to... Incapacitation risk, basically. You know, aviation doctors are worried about you having any medical condition that causes you to become incapacitated whilst you're flying an aeroplane. Uh, as we all know with type 1 diabetes, if you miscalculate your insulin dose, then you're at risk of giving yourself a hypo. Uh, so that's a pretty you know, rapid way to incapacitate yourself. In the longer term, if, uh, if you're unfortunate enough to develop complications from diabetes, uh, things that affect your vision... Yeah, your nerves in your hands and feet, those kind of things make it difficult to fly an aeroplane as well. So uh, it's kind of both ends of the diabetes spectrum that uh, are worrisome from a flying point of view. So that was the end of your career.
0: Mm. How, how crushing
1: was that? Uh, fairly crushing. Yeah. Um, I remember doing a lot of crying and a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of soul-searching and wondering why and you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, the other thing was that I was diagnosed six weeks before our wedding, so that kind of took over from a busyness and life stress point of view. So when I think about it, I don't have a lot of memories. I don't have a lot of specific memories about those few weeks of my life. I definitely remember getting married. Um,
0: <laughs> I'm sure your wife appreciates it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think life, I think I was, yeah, it was, I was just under so much stress at that point that uh, I was just putting one foot in front of the other and that was it.
0: So how long did it take until you could sort of sort your thoughts and work out what next?
1: Oh, months to years, I guess. I just had a lot, a lot to do. You know, the, the diagnosis, learning everything there is to know about how to manage diabetes and figuring out uh, accessing my insurance, winding up my employment at Qantas, getting a medical termination, looking at my finances and uh, completely rejigging those. I was halfway through an engineering degree at the time, so that was kind of my saving grace. That gave me something something continuous to do, so I continued doing one subject a semester of that, and that, I guess, kept my my academic brain busy. And it really wasn't until probably close to 12 months later that I was starting to think about, okay, what am I going to do long-term, professionally?
0: All right. You say you were midway through an engineering degree, but... You didn't choose engineering, you went in a different direction and perhaps it was because your health you was now, you're obsessing about that.
1: Well, I think uh, undoubtedly it played a part in that decision. I don't think it was, I don't think it was a, a majority influencer. The engineering I enjoyed, because it was aerospace engineering and yeah, you know, I've never struggled being interested in any aspect of aeroplanes, but... The act of finishing my thesis made me realise that whilst I found it interesting, I probably couldn't see myself working in the field and that I wanted something with a, I guess, a bit more human, regular human contact in it. And that's where the medicine came in because it it overlaps heavily. Lots of complex topic areas, decision-making, problem-solving. I like problem-solving. But then... Problem solving humans rather than problem solving machines was what sounded more interesting. So that's what made me decide that, yeah, I'd pursue medicine.
0: Were you prepared for those sacrifices that you have to make? At, at that time of your life, you just got married, you were 31 years of age. A lot of sacrifices to make.
1: Yeah, I was probably a little bit naive. I think having just completed the engineering degree, I thought, oh, it's just going to be, you know, more academics for four years and off we go. But. Yeah, I was wrong. Uh, so, I mean, medicine is much more than just the academics because you are dealing with people. There's, there's a huge human side to it, which is one of the things I love about it, but can be a very draining aspect of the training. You know, being exposed to unwell people. You know, it's usually, it's your first exposure to someone who is dying. Um, you know, you do autopsies as part of your training. Uh, there's a lot of very emotionally confronting aspects to it, and. Uh, yeah, and then the workload. Yeah, you know, I've never really done anything else that has had the same workload as that degree. And yeah, my son was born just before I started med school. My daughter was born halfway through third year. Yeah, you know, the, the last year and a half of medical school were probably the least pleasant years of my life, without a doubt.
0: Yeah. So, which um, uh, field did you decide to
1: to specialise in? I mean, what was your objective in completing the degree? Well, I guess when I started, I didn't know. Uh, I knew that broadly, medicine sounded interesting. And that medical practice was broad enough that I was bound to find some aspect of it that I found fascinating enough to want to make a career of. And your training does do a fairly good job of exposing you to to most of the major specialties. Uh, But the one I've settled on is aviation medicine or aerospace medicine. Um, And really that's no surprise given my background. And I'm, I'm about halfway through my specialty training with that at the moment. So
0: what do you yeah. do with aviation medicine? Because you're, you're actually with the what the Australian College of Aerospace Medicine.
1: Yeah, that's the college that I'm studying under. Mm-hmm. And uh, my day-to-day work, I work as an aviation medical examiner. So all pilots require a medical examination uh, so anywhere between once every six months to once every four or five years, depending on how old they are and what license they hold. So, so that's my job. I see pilots on a regular basis and... If they're young, fit, and healthy, it's a very straightforward process. Um, but most people tend to accumulate medical conditions, especially as they age, and it comes back to that risk management, you know, that incapacitation risk that we were talking about earlier. Uh, how to manage those across a variety of conditions and keep people flying safely.
0: Well, speaking of flying safely, you could still fly, could you not? Certainly, privately with a restricted pilot's license.
1: Well, I'm very lucky that I'm in Australia. Not long after I was diagnosed, Australia became, I think, the third or fourth country to allow people treated with insulin to hold a private pilot's licence without any restriction. So whilst I was at medical school, I sort of chipped away at at doing that and by the end of medical school I had also re-obtained my my private pilot's licence without any restriction.
0: Okay, so you are flying... On a fairly regular basis?
1: Yeah, I was. Uh, I would take friends for scenic flights. Um, if I had spare time in holidays or uni breaks, I'd do some volunteer flying instructing on very light aircraft, which I was allowed to do with that level of pilot medical. And since I've finished medical school, things have kind of progressed two different ways. One is the rules around what sort of flying you can do with a private pilot medical have changed. They actually now allow you to do some of the less complicated commercial flying, with a, a private pilot medical. So I'm, I can now fly small freight aeroplanes. Uh, I can instruct uh, on, on normal learn-to-fly-sized size airplanes uh, And then the last thing that's happened in May last year, May 2020, I managed to get my Class 1 medical back. So I could now, if there were any jobs going in airlines... I could apply for a job as an airline pilot again.
0: Yeah, maybe now is not the time to be doing no. that,
1: given where we're at as far as COVID and uh, and the difficulty that, that
0: pilots in general find themselves in. But, Jeremy, before we reach that point, I gather that in the UK restrictions were lifted for insulin-dependent pilots. Then you saw that opportunity in Australia. You, did you not, in fact, agitate for change in
1: Australia by making
0: a submission to CASA? Yeah, agitate's probably a good word.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yes. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Canada, about 12 or 13 years ago, allowed insulin-treated pilots to fly commercially. The UK picked that up about eight years ago. And what prompted my decision here was was that the UK Aviation Medical Authority actually published some data on how they were managing pilots on insulin therapy whilst they were flying to back up their decision and, and show that their protocol was working. And... Published medical evidence is what you need to make change, basically. So that that gave me a bit of meat to add to my submission to the Civil Aviation Safety Authority here and say, you know, why can't we do the same thing here? Because the UK protocol started about eight years ago, CGM wasn't quite as advanced as it is today, so their protocol doesn't require it. And part of being able to get it to happen here in Australia was to, to mandate the use of CGM for commercial flying because uh, I think for those of us that use CGM, you know how much information it gives you about your diabetes and from a, a way to minimise your risk of having an incapacitating event due to hypoglycemia, you know, the CGM's the best thing we've got at the moment.
0: Do you see yourself back in the cockpit of a big airliner? One
1: day, one day, absolutely. I'm not sure when or how. You know, Like you say, the industry's not in the greatest shape at the moment, but that'll turn around and at some point... In the future, um, I would love to to get back into some regular commercial flying. I don't think I can walk away from my medical career either. I've Mm. put too much blood, sweat and tears into it. But if I can find some way to combine the two, then I'd be happy as Larry. Okay, but you're also an instructor at the moment? Yep. Yeah, just doing some casual flying instructing a couple of days a week, just teaching people to fly, which is good fun. And I know you're also involved in a rural clinic. Just tell us a bit about that. Yes, so with my my aviation medicine hat on, uh, in country New South Wales, this qualification that I have to assess pilots for their medicals, it's a bit of a niche qualification and there are fewer and fewer doctors in country New South Wales that are doing it. So it's a great way for me to combine flying and medicine and once a month I fly myself around six or seven country towns and just spend a morning or an afternoon seeing pilots uh, for their aviation medicals. Yeah, it's great fun.
0: So, Jeremy, you've mentioned that you've, you've got two kids. What are their ages?
1: A nine-year-old boy and a six-year-old girl.
0: Are you concerned that, that they may develop type 1? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, I guess I'm not concerned in that I'm, I worry about it every day, mm. but it's, it's in the back of my mind. I know that first-degree relatives of people with type 1 diabetes have an elevated risk of developing it themselves. And I think up until now, we haven't really done anything about that. You know, am talking about my family because if some, if one of them developed diabetes, or if we knew that one of them was going to develop type one diabetes, until recently there hasn't really been very much you could do about that. So it doesn't really change anything. And I'd much prefer just to keep living my life normally without that constant worry, you know, waiting for one of them to develop symptoms. Uh, I'm kind of rethinking that at the moment because you know, some of the some of the newer studies are starting to you know look at antibody levels prior to diagnosis and looking at ways to to delay the onset of the disease. And I think if that was available for my children, that's something that I would want. So this is another conversation I have to have with my wife at some point.
0: You're in a great position because you're invested in both medicine but also technology. Given the advances in diabetes technology, what's your view on that as far as allowing greater freedom for those
1: with type one i think the the closed loop pumps that we're starting to see are probably the the best and and quickest step forward in treating the disease at the moment looping's been on the scene you know for a few years now and people have been building their own systems and so on and you know i know a few of those people and the results that they get with their with their levels is incredible so for that technology to be available to those of us that are less tech savvy and uh less inclined to tinker with our medical devices and i fall into that category i think that's a huge step forward as you've seen with the cgms they're getting more accurate they're getting smaller pumps are getting better and smaller integrating the two and just looking at the natural progression of technology where things get smaller and easier to use i think if we end up at a point where the looping systems are so good that really yeah you keep an eye on your levels on your phone and you have some alerts but Maybe ninety-five percent of the time, it's just doing its thing, and you don't have to think about it or worry about it. You don't have to think, well, how many, you know, how many cups of orange juice do I have before I go and play my game of sport, or how big does this glass of milk have to be before I go to bed so that I don't have a hypo at three a.m. To remove that kind of continual decision making from parents of young children with diabetes, and also from from adults themselves, that's a huge step forward.
0: Jeremy, it's been fantastic to hear your story. Uh- I'll be fascinated to know in future whether I'll be on your plane or in your surgery.
1: Well, hopefully you won't end up in my surgery, but (laughs) uh, if you're on an aeroplane that I'm on, please, you know, come and say hello. Jerry Robertson, terrific to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much.
0: If you'd like to find out more about JDRF Australia or get involved with their various initiatives supporting the Australian T1D community, visit their website, jdrf.org, Dot au. For all the latest updates on T1D research, search JDRF Australia on Facebook or follow them on Instagram under at JDRFAUS. And keep an ear out for more episodes in our T1D Tune In series wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Until then, I'm Andrew Gagan. Thanks for listening. Views expressed in this podcast are broadcast for informational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice. Consult your team of healthcare professionals for health or personal advice that is right for you.